You're listening to TIP. They'll see something trading at 26 times earnings or 30 times earnings and they'll think that it's expensive. But, you know, when you work out what the return on capital is of that business and you, you, know, you can just look at something simple. You can look at ROE and then you can look at how much they're reinvesting every year. So if the ROE is, let's say, 20%, and they're reinvesting 80% of that, you know, paying out 20% in dividends, then you've got, you know, 16% roughly in compounding. And then your question is, you know, question for you is then, is that good enough for you as an investor? Is it, is it secure enough? Is it durable enough? Do you feel good enough about it that you're willing to just sit and, and wait? And there's some sliding scale. You're going to find some that, you know, they're in 30% and maybe they're doing, they're paying out, uh, again, 20%. Now you're looking at 24% kind of is your compounding and you have to, and that makes a big difference. So then when you think about it in terms of a decade out, you just sort of forecast what 24% compounded is over a 10 year period of time. It's a big number. And then you put a multiple on that at the end of 10 years and compare it to today and get your IRR. You can see suddenly if you have a company that's going to increase earnings six, eight times over the next decade, suddenly whether you pay 30 times earnings or 35, suddenly doesn't seem like, you know, that, that big of a deal, right? In this episode, I chat with Chris Mayer about the special qualities of serial acquirers that make them compelling investments, tricks on how to value serial acquirers, the importance of decentralization for successful serial acquirers, the proper dynamics to look for between the acquirer and the acquired, the proper uses of leverage to use in mergers and acquisitions, characteristics to look for in scaling serial acquirers, the proper management traits to look for in highly successful serial acquirers, and a whole lot more. My first exposure to Chris Mayer was probably the same as most listeners, from reading his book, Hunter Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1, and How to Find Them. After reading that, I started looking at his portfolio very closely. Even though I had my own framework for quality, his strategies were completely aligned with what I was trying to do. I'd send him some ideas, which he hasn't bid on yet, and ask him for feedback on my own analysis. He graciously helped me with my thinking on all sorts of topics, especially in regard to Topicus, Evolution AB, Technion AB, and Dino Polska. I started moving in a similar direction to what he was already doing, which was looking at serial acquirers. The simple reason serial acquirers are so interesting is the mixture of high returns on invested capital and high reinvestment opportunities. The mixture of these two metrics can cause massive shareholder value if the high numbers are sustainable over many years. Chris recently joined the TIP Mastermind community for an incredible Q&A where members got to pick his mind on a variety of investing topics. The subject of serial acquirers came up and I thought it would be great to deep dive into the world of serial acquirers with him. So I reached out to Chris with the idea of talking about serial acquirers rather than strictly talking about multibaggers. So if you're interested in learning more about how serial acquirers work, the value they can create, and the differences between a good one and a bad one, you'll want to tune into this episode. Now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Chris Mayer. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Chris Mayer onto the show. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Kyle. Good to talk to you. Chris is well known for his love of serial acquirers. 
He holds some of the greatest hero choirs out there in Heiko and Constellation software, as well as some of the less well-known names such as Technion, Topicus, Lumine, and Brown and Brown. So today we're going to go into a deep dive into the world of serial choirs and pick Chris's brain about them. Let's start with the basics, Chris. What is a serial choir and why should investors be interested in learning more about the business model? Well, I would say a serial choir is a business where regular acquisitions are a uh, big part of the company's growth. So that's a very broad definition. But yeah, any company that's routinely, regularly doing acquisitions to grow, that's a good working definition of a serial acquirer. So what the appeal is, I think there's a number of different things. One is, you know, fundamentally they are, as, as investors, we're looking for companies, or at least I'm looking for companies that have high returns on capital and, and the ability to reinvest over a long period of time. So serial acquirers meet that need. They, they have long runways and uh, yeah, they have the ability to pull a capital and earn those high returns. So that's a big part of the appeal. They solve an investment problem. And I think the other part of it is that serial acquirers own a lot of different businesses usually. So there's, they're very resilient. It's not quite like when you own a company and they do one or two things and if one of their products is compromised, somehow you're, you're in serious trouble. Usually with serial acquirers, you know, they've got multiple different businesses. And so they're very resilient, at least the best of them are. And then so that's, those two combinations, I think, are, are very appealing. So I'd like to know what got you interested into the serial acquire business model in the first place. It's a good question, and I wish I knew more definitively. It's sort of in the midst of time a little bit, but I I do know that it started with Constellation Software, and um, I remember being skeptical of Constellation Software for years and years and years, and just kind of thinking, you know, how is this possible? How can this company acquire so many other businesses? And I remember thinking, well, there must be a lot of junky businesses with low terminal value and, you know, just being totally skeptical about it. But then one day I did just sat down and read all of Mark Leonard's letters and uh, I just started to dig into it and figure it out. And it, and it sort of clicked how this can work. You know, there's some parts of the constellation formula that other serial acquirers also follow, but there, there's this decentralized model, how they run their businesses. So it's not like you have one guy in headquarters who's buying hundreds of businesses. It's And in Constellation's case, it's almost like you have six different divisions all looking to acquire businesses. And then even within those divisions, there's subdivisions that are able to do their own acquisitions. And there's a certain discipline to it and formula to it. In Constellation's case, they're acquiring the same kind of businesses over and over. And so they have a, a way to create a box, a formula, what they're looking for and just reapply it again and again. So when that started to click and I saw that worked, you know, I started to see kind of the patterns in other serial acquirers as well. That's how I got interested in it and it just broadened from there. I, I uh, got interested in Heiko, got interested in some of these others and then discovered the Nordic serial acquirers in Sweden. And there's plenty of those. Uh, that's how it really began. And with your adventure to serial acquirers, did you discover them before or after you did your, your Hunter Baker study? Yeah, it was after. I mean, there were serial acquirers in the 100-bagger study, but it wasn't like, you know, my brain said, oh, these are serial acquirers. I just, uh, they were kind of an invisible category to me at the time. And if you had asked me then, actually in circa 2015 or so, I would have still been of the opinion that I didn't want a company that was very acquisitive. You know, there's a general, as you know, kind of a distrust maybe or, you know, about companies that are acquisitive. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But that was something that I learned later, but there are a number of serial acquirers that are in that 100-bagger study, but I learned about it after. 
And I often say, like, if I did a, an update or something, I think I would include a chapter on serial acquirers. They, they merit their own uh, little study. So Scott Management had a great write-up where they discussed subtypes of serial acquirers. They were roll-ups such as waste management, accumulators like Constellation Software, platform like Danaher, and holdcos such as Berkshire Hathaway. Do you categorize serial acquirers into subtypes? And if so, do you have a preference for a specific subtype? I do not. Uh, I know I read that Scott piece, which is great. It was excellent. I guess I've studied too much of uh, Alfred Krasibsky and General Semantics to sweat too much over definitions and categories. So I tend to peek and peer right through those. And so for me, it really, you know, it doesn't really matter what kind of label you want to put on it. For me, it's just focusing on the, on the business and return on capital reinvestment opportunities, the people involved, the balance sheet and the sustainability of what they're doing. And so whether it's a, someone thinks of it as a platform company or an accumulator doesn't so much matter to me. I'd say the ones I kind of prefer are ones where, you know, they have a big market opportunity. I like the ones where there's a more def- sort of definable culture or where I really have great trust in the management team and the incentives and uh, that don't depend too much on leverage and aren't too aggressive. There's kind of like a sweet middle path. You, you kind of run with these things. You don't want to be too aggressive, but you don't want to be too laconic either. So there's a, there's a middle path there. And th- those are kind of the ones I favor, not so much by what I, not so much by a category or type. And then one offshoot of that is the roll-ups. So roll-ups just to me seem a little more centralized. What's your, what are your thoughts on roll-ups compared to, you know, a lot of the decentralized names that you have in your portfolio? I prefer the decentralized model. It makes more sense to me about how that's sustainable over a very long period of time. It seems to me that if you have a centralized process, that can work when you're smaller, but then there's a point where it just becomes quite a burden on the HQ to keep that M&A machine going. I don't know that we have so many examples of centralized models that work that work really well. I mean, the roll-ups, you know, when you say roll-ups to an American investor, typically they're going to view that negatively because there's, you know, lots of examples of roll-ups that then went bust or blew up somehow or other. But yeah, I, I, I think I, I prefer the, the decentralized model. Seems a little more resilient, seems easier to scale and grow and less risk as you do so. So evaluating serial acquirers can be tough as their assets producing cash flows will obviously change as they acquire more and more businesses. So I'd love to know, what is your go-to way of evaluating serial acquirers? First, I think they still have to pass all the tests that any other business I would invest in would pass. And so I have some quirky things, you know, that I look for my, you know, we talked about balance sheet strength is something that, you know, my tolerance for that is a lot lower than other people. My tolerance for leverage is a lot lower than other investors. It doesn't mean that you can't make a lot of money in a more leveraged vehicle. It's just my own preference. And then I've talked about a lot. Skin in the game, insider ownership is something that I, I look for. But again, there's plenty of companies, exceptions to that. Those are kind of filters I put on in general. But then when I'm starting specifically to look at a serial acquirer, there's a lot of little things. So, you know, I don't like the ones that are super aggressive and buying up everything. So, you know, an example is like Storskogen in Sweden when it first came out. You know, they were just, I mean, they had bought a ton of companies, I think, over a three-year period, something like 170 companies. It was, a, it was a lot. They were very aggressive. They were buying everything and they weren't particularly disciplined about what they were buying or paying all kinds of prices. And you just talk to people in Stockholm and they would, they would tell you that. So, I like the ones that are much more disciplined, steady. You know, I own Lifco. Lifco is a great example. You know, they have definite, they have a certain model 
certain kind of business they're looking for. And every year is just kind of steady. And that's what I want, like steady, consistent, disciplined deployment of capital, not too much leverage. I look a lot at incentive, incentives. Those are some key ones. I think, uh, you know, again, you have to consider the opportunity. So it's Lyfco is a good one where they are, they own businesses across multiple countries. So you have a much bigger addressable market perhaps than, um, than a, so you require this confined to one industry or one geography. So those are things you have to consider. Yeah, I'm sure there's more things that will come up as we speak, but you know, those are some traits that I like. If you were to, let's say someone was looking at Lifco right now and they wanted to figure out if the valuation right now was good, what would be kind of the metrics that you, you personally would use or you would suggest people use? Because serial acquires, obviously, you know, you can look at free cash flow, which is fine. But the thing with serial acquires is that if their free cash flow is zero, it just means they're deploying all their cash. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to know your, what you think on that. That's right. We want them to deploy their capital. So you really have to look at some sort of free cash flow metric before acquisitions to kind of get at what they're doing. And then you want them to deploy that. But, you know, you get to a good, you raise a good question there with kind of valuation because people struggle with that a lot and they'll see something trading at 26 times earnings or 30 times earnings and they'll think that it's expensive. But, you know, when you work out what the return on capital is of that business and you, you could just look at something simple. You could look at ROE and then you could look at how much they're reinvesting every year. So if the ROE is, let's say, 20% and they're reinvesting 80% of that, you know, paying out 20% in dividends, then you've got, you know, 16% roughly in compounding. And then your question is, you know, question for you is then, is that good enough for you as an investor? Is it, is it secure enough? Is it durable enough? Do you feel good enough about it that you're willing to just sit and, and wait? And there's some sliding scale. You're going to find some that, you know, they're in 30% and maybe they're doing, they're paying out, uh, again, 20%. Now you're looking at 24% kind of is your compounding. And you have to, and that makes a big difference. So then when you think about it in terms of a decade out, you just sort of forecast what 24% compounded is over a 10-year period of time. It's a big number. And then you put a multiple on that at the end of 10 years and compare it to today and get your IRR, you can see suddenly... If you have a company that's going to increase earnings six, eight times over the next decade, suddenly whether you pay 30 times earnings or 35, suddenly doesn't seem like, you know, that, that big of a deal, right? So you have to put it in that kind of perspective. So I always say, you know, it's business first, quality of business first. Spend a lot of time building that conviction on what it looks like on a 10-year view, having a great deal of confidence in that. And then, and again, that means digging into the economics of it, whether or not that's sustainable. And then you figure out kind of what today's price and what the IRR is. And I mean, many of them are still cheap, even at 25 or 30 times earnings, if they're successful in, in, in doing that. And so you can always, you know, take a toehold position to start and then you get chances to add along the way. But, you know, some. I always say too, you learn more when you own something than when you just follow it. When you own it and then you really start to see, you know, the economics, I mean, you really start to understand, you know, what makes it go. That's one way to get over that hurdle. I like how you break down to, you know, it's just a simple math equation, right? And, and like you just said, if you use ROE and book value, and if you have a good understanding of the sustainability of their return on equity, if they can keep it at that high level and they're likely to just keep their reinvestment the same, then your valuation is going to be somewhat accurate at the end of the day. 
Right. And also, you know, then you also can come to appreciate the differences between companies. So if you have a company, you know, a lot of times people say to me, well, why do you own X? Why don't you own Z? And it's what I own is trading at 30 times. And what they're suggesting is seems very similar, but it's trading at 20 times. But then when you look at the return on capital and the reinvestment rate, you see that difference. And when you cast it over 10 years, it's an enormous difference. And so the market's not entirely dumb. You know, it's, it has settled, it has figured out that the, one of these is not going to create as much value as the other. Uh, and so I see that all the time. People trying to go with the lower multiple name, thinking it's cheaper and it's very similar. But when you look at it, the, you know, the higher return business is quite a bit better. You know, even three, four, five percentage points matter a lot, as you know, over a decade. So it's no secret that most mergers and acquisitions is value creative for the seller and not the acquirer. And yet the institutional imperative of growth keeps businesses in hot pursuit of M&A, even when the research suggests that it is mostly Mm -hmm. a losing proposition. What do you think are the key attributes from successful serial acquirers that allow them to buck this trend? And I think you've read this book as well, Deals from Hell. You know about that book. Yeah, because I think he pushes back on that. It says actually, you know, M&A is not value destructive in general. It's, it is it's just that there are, you know, the failures are so high profile. But he has some interesting things about that in that book. But I would say, you know, sticking for a minute to the serial acquirers, smaller deals. I hate this word programmatic, but people use it, you know, where it's more of like a routine acquisition that fits into a certain box that that, that company's looking for. Those tend to create value. The ones that hurt are over their big splashy acquisitions. There's a lot of leverage involved. If it's something that's outside of management circle of competence. I mean, you have a, if you have a serial acquired, it's accumulating industri- industrial businesses, and then all of a sudden they buy you know, a retail chain or something like that. But that could be a risk. So what makes them buck that general trend of having these failures is that they are smaller, they're more routine, they fit into what those businesses do, what they know about. Again, it's the decentralized model that we talked about. Those are important factors. I'm sure I'm missing something there, but that's some of it. Speaking of deals from hell, In that book, the author Robert Bruner outlines some of the biggest M&A failures happen, like what you just said, when acquirers purchase in hot markets and at poor prices. Mm -hmm. So many of the best serial acquirers purchase businesses on private and not public markets, which can help take away a little bit of that risk. So how do you think that gives them an advantage over, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a big one too. I mean, the, the companies that are acquiring other public companies, much more difficult than acquiring private companies. So for one thing, a lot of the private companies, I mean, they're just the multiples are what they're paying is a lot less. It's, it is a lot less. So, I mean, that, that's a big factor. And, you know, some of the best serial acquirers, they are really, they're not necessarily, you know, I own Technion, for example, and they're not necessarily just buying from brokers. They're doing their own work as far as trying to dig up candidates. You know, they're on the phone calling companies, meeting with them, and it can be years before they actually acquire that company. There's this long kind of relationship building period. And that, that has a lot of appeal to me, the companies that can do, can do that. Because then they're really thinking about things like culture and good fit, and they're really giving a lot of thought to what they buy versus acquirers where it's more of a financially motivated transaction or financial engineered transaction where you're just buying companies that are private because they're lower multiple and you're in a public vehicle at a higher multiple. And so you kind of just take advantage of this arbitrage. So I think that, you know, buying companies privately, yeah, you avoid that sort of auction platform. Although there's certainly, it can, and private markets can get hot. You're still a lot cheaper than public markets. And you, so you avoid that, that sort of bidding war that gets, uh, that can happen on a public platform. 
Another big takeaway from Robert Bruner's book is that the quote, best deals seem to be improvements of the target company rather than improvements of the buyer. Buyers go into the best deals as healthy, well-performing firms seeking to spread their best practices to the targets. The worst deals show buyers who perform poorer than targets leading up to the deal. So have you found the statement to be pretty accurate from your observations and research on multibaggers and serial acquirers? Yeah, I think so. I think the companies that are doing the acquisition, they bring a, bring a set of best practices to, the, to what they acquire. Certainly, uh, Constellation is a great example of you know, bringing best practices to companies they acquire. There's a certain playbook that they have. And one part of that is simply increasing prices uh, or what they call value-based pricing. So you know, they don't uh, spend a lot of money improving a product unless, there's a, unless the customer is willing to pay for that. So it's just a simple matter of making sure they get paid for the work they put in. And I find in other serial acquirers as well, they, they can help with, uh, you know, like Technion, they can help with the human resource function, especially help them find people and they can take that load off of uh, CEO running that company and manager team running that company. Other serial acquirers, they can help with working capital management and other issues. So there, there, there is some value add that, that a serial acquirer can bring to the companies they acquire. So I would say, yeah, that's generally true. And another way you see it is that over time, the margins of companies, for, again, for the better, better serial acquirers, the margins of the companies they acquire tend to improve over time. So that's an example that they're getting better, getting, being better, better businesses. And in some cases, like with Lifco, they've, you can go back and you can look, uh, and I believe they've disclosed this, like you can look at a division, they, uh, a company they acquired years ago called Brock, and you can see 20 years ago what it did in revenue, and, and you can see what it does now, and it's like 20 times as large. So it's a, a case where they've helped businesses grow and get better over time. I, I like that aspect of it. And Brunner, I remember in the, in the same book, he said a lot of the best acquisitions came from a position of strength rather than mm. from a position of weakness. and. You know, it seems like a lot of these bad acquisitions come where the company is going in and they're not doing so well. And then they have to make this acquisition to try to garner interest from investors. Yes, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think the serial acquirers, I don't think there are too many that do this where they're actively just taking, around, taking on a turnaround. I guess Constellation is, is, good at, is good at that. And they're buying companies that are not generally, sometimes not necessarily performing that well and they come in and improve it. But for a lot of the other industrial serial acquirers are not doing that. And I think they've learned how difficult that is, you know, to do the turnarounds. It's, it's like Buffett says, most turnarounds don't turn. That's the problem. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So now that we know some of the attributes of successful serial acquirers, let's get into what exactly makes a good acquisition. What are the characteristics that the acquirer should look for in the businesses that they are acquiring so the acquisition will be value creative to the shareholder? Well, this is where it's, it's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And so all the different serial acquirers have their different targets. They all, almost all of them that I've seen have some sort of, say, target margin that they're looking for. Or they'll talk about sales growth. They'll even talk about, you know, minimum size. Um, so I don't know that there's a real a definitive answer there because there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can do it with higher margin businesses. You can do it with lower margin businesses. You can do it with capital light. Most of them are trying to be capital light. So they're talking about businesses that don't require a great deal of reinvestment capital expenditures just to keep going. That's another attribute tends to be. What I like is also when the serial acquirers do the deals without issuing shares. I don't like the ones that are issuing a lot of shares to fuel their acquisition. That's kind of a maybe more of a red flag where they use a lot of leverage. You know, most of them are, if you're talking about like, say, you know, debt to EBITDA two and a half times or less, and they can float around a lot and can vary a little bit on the industry. Like Brown and Brown is one I own. Every time they do a, a big deal, you'll see their kind of net leverage kind of swells a little. Like they just bought last year, they bought GRP in the UK. So their leverage is going to swell up a little, but then come down and 2018, they bought Hayes, which was the largest acquisition they did at that point. And the same thing, you could see their leverage pop up a little and then kind of come down. You know, Heiko just bought Wencore, and so they're going to have, a, and their leverage is going to pop up. But I'm talking about when you're looking at the company over a longer period of time, what's kind of normal leverage. And for me, in less than two times, debt to EBITDA is a good number. And I think most of them have some kind of targets like that. So where they get in trouble is, you know, issuing shares, leverage, doing too many deals, and not being disciplined about what they pay. Those are kind of where they screw up. How about synergies? Do you actually like businesses that will are synergistic with the acquired business? Or do you like the ones that it doesn't really matter that much? Yeah, I like the ones where it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, in my experience, true synergies are kind of hard to find, really. It's a number that gets thrown around a lot. People talk about not a number. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Management teams like to talk about synergies, but real synergies are kind of hard to find when they happen. Great. It's wonderful. But I prefer that it not 
that the deal not depend on that, not depend on synergies. And what about aligning incentives between the acquired and the acquiree? What are your favorite models for that to look for? This is a great question because this is one area where they're different. So some serial acquirers will buy out 100% and just use some kind of earnout structure. That works. And lots of companies use that. Technion uses earnout. Brown Brown uses earnouts. And then there's the other model more where they might, they don't buy 100% of what they're buying. They buy 80, 70 or 80% and they leave the management team in with some skin in the game. That's like the Heiko model. They do that. And that works very well too. At Liftco, most of the time they're buying at everything, although they have had some deals where they don't buy out the whole. I don't know that I have a preference one way or the other, just that you know, different models and management teams make different ones work. They both can work very well. And I've owned own companies that do it both ways. So I think, again, this is one of those that falls more along the lines of maybe personal preference, but also whether that particular serial acquirer is successful with whatever method it's chosen. You could, we could sit here and imagine ways in which, you know, earnouts could fail, somebody not do it well, or the other way. So, you know, you, you take out 70% of the management team and you think you've got them interested with 30%, but they're not. Now, what do you got? Now you've got a problematic partner that owns 30% of the, of the equity. So both can fail and both can work. So this might also be personal preference, but what about management? So once an acquirer acquires the business, do you prefer management stay in place or do you like when they just buy the business and then can find their own management afterwards? It feels better when the management team stays. I know that that I would prefer that that not be acquirement. So for example, I remember talking to Pear, the CEO at Lifco, and he told me, you know, they underwrite every deal as if the management team walked away right after, you know, because that's kind of the worst thing that happens. You have to think that, can you run the business? Do you have people and all of that? So I think that's a good way to approach it, but it feels better to have the existing management team run it at least for a couple of years. I don't expect them to stay there forever. This is how the opportunity is created. Why is Technion able to buy some of these nice businesses? Uh, it was because the people who owned them, started them, ran them for 20 or 30 years, want to retire. <laughs> so you can't expect to buy that and then have that person stick around for 10 years. It's just not the way it's going to work. So a common problem many serial acquirers face as they scale is a problem of growth. When you're mm-hmm. smaller, a small acquisition can still move the needle. But as you grow cash flows, you find larger businesses uh, that you have to reinvest your cash into. The theory is that as these deals get larger in size, it becomes harder to apply your strict acquisition criteria to larger acquisitions. I'd like to get your thoughts on how some of the larger serial acquirers like Constellation Software are going to be able to sustain their high returns on capital while doing deals in, say, the sub $700 million range. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the big big concern with serial acquirers is is as they scale, it gets more challenging. And um, like a lot of the Swedish serial acquirers, like an Indu Trade or Lagerkrantz, as they got bigger, they just they did bigger deal. It's not not necessarily they did more; they just did bigger. So that's interesting. And but you do see a certain fade over time. You know, as you as you get larger, the the, the return on that capital starts to kind of tail off, and, and as you would expect. But you can still create a lot of value. You know, if you're starting, let's say Constellation started at 30, 35% return on invested capital, and it's got a lot of room to come down and still create value if they're putting large amounts of capital to work. So it's both things that you want, returns and the amount of capital you can put to work. But yeah, Constellation is a really interesting case and I own it. And it's always the question when I talk to other shareholders, it's the thing we talk about. It's, you know, what does Constellation 2.0 sort of look like? What are they, you know, how can they continue to do what they're doing? How sustainable is it? What does it look like? I think we're getting a peek at it. I mean, they did the deal where they bought the 
what was it, Blue Optima from Black Knight, which was an incredibly good deal for them. And before that, they did the All Scripts deal, which was a very large deal. Jury's still out on how exactly that deal's coming out. But uh, yeah, it will, will be, remain to be seen with, with Constellation, whether they can continue to do it or not. I, and they're still doing you know, some of the smallest acquisitions too. So it's funny to have a company of that market cap and they're still doing these little tiny, tiny deals. And based on research that I've done and I've talked to people in that business, I mean, they're still, you know, they have 100,000 plus targets that they track. You know, not all those are actionable, of course, but there still seems to be, and there's more copycats and everything. So there still seems to be a lot of opportunity and we'll just have to wait and see. But this is the, this is the big concern with serial acquirers. And once they get that big, it gets harder and harder to find ways to deploy that capital, larger and larger sums, but can be done. I mean, I remember uh, people talking about Berkshire Hathaway and how, you know, it was too big 30 years ago. So, and still had a lot of legs left and look at constellations is tiny compared to that. So, they're among the best corporate capital allocators on the planet. So, if you, if you want someone, if you wanted to pick someone to solve that problem, you would, you would pick them, I think. So, I, I feel good that they're going to figure it out. We'll see. And you would know much better about these deals than I would. Are they basically still applying their same acquisition criteria to small deals, just to larger deals? Or what differences are you seeing? As they go up, the, the IRR hurdle comes down. There's a sliding scale. They're a smaller deal. Let's just say, I don't remember the numbers offhand, but let's say it's like 30% you know, return required on, on a deal of you know, the smallest deals. And as you step up on revenue, that, that hurdle rate comes down. So uh, they, they acknowledge the reality of that. You're not going to be able to put together big sums of capital at the same IRR that you can hoover up these tiny, tiny VM, VMS businesses. So. so from my research on serial acquires, the general observation I've made is that organic growth rates tend to go down as the business scales up. So how do you incorporate organic growth rates into your analytical process? Yeah, I mean, I focus more on total growth uh, and I don't want organic growth to be negative. So there you go. You know, Constellations has been very successful with organic growth rates of low single digits. So I think, uh, you know, it's nice to have high organic growth rates. Of course, it makes the, everything work better. It makes the model work better, but you don't have to have it. Total growth is more important. And then secondarily, you want that organic growth to at least be kind of positive. I think the market does tend to punish companies that have negative organic growth. And I think organic growth is interesting to keep an eye on anyway, because it it's kind of like a clue as to how management or how much attention is paid to a business once it's acquired. So it's kind of like uh, if the management team does pay attention to the businesses after they acquire them, you're, you tend to see better growth rates. They're just, it reflects more of the attention paid there, I think. I mean, as a generalization, I think that's probably a good indication that organic growth is a, is a kind of an outcome of paying attention to how the businesses are managed once you acquire them. And from your research on serial acquires, are you aware of management incentivization programs that are looking for organic growth? Like I know Topicus, I think Dayan, who was the former CEO, he is incentivized to get organic growth. But do you see that in other companies as well? No, no, I have not. A lot of times targets are based on EBITDA or some version of, of that. It's interesting, not, not as many even have a per share component. Technion does, they have earnings per share. Double every five years is their goal. I think there's another serial quite I think Velati I remember seeing has a per share actually has a per share requirement for something. So there there are some out there like that, but I don't recall seeing specifically organic growth being called out. That may be, you know, part of the incentives for those for the individual subsidiaries. We just don't see it necessarily at 
as investors at our level. So financing mergers and acquisitions is very important to successful deals. Most deals are financed by cash, bank debt, or the issuance of equity. Cash mm-hmm. is probably the best source of financing as it carries the least amount of risk, but many yeah. great serial acquirers have more ideas than they have cash on their balance sheets. If they can maintain their acquisition criteria, then leveraging with debt or equity can be the right move. What method of financing do you find the most valuable for the acquirer? The best are the ones that are able to finance their acquisition program entirely with their own cash flow, their own operating cash flow. And so just as operating cash flow comes in, they reinvest it and operating cash flow you know, grows over time and they're reinvesting it. That's a beautiful thing. Some leverage in there I think is, is good. Some small amount of leverage you know, juices the returns a little bit without, any, without really any risk. I'm okay with that. And you just, like we talked about before, the excessive leverage, you can get into trouble. And I don't like issuing shares so much either, just because that's a very, very extensive, expensive way to buy things. You know, you always, I always think about Warren Buffett talking about his Dexter shoe where he issued shares to buy it. And, you know, and he tells about how expensive it is in later years. And so I think of that too, you know, I, I think, well, I look at the shares as precious. And so, you know, what are they going to be worth 10 years from now? And then how expensive is that acquisition going to really look? Uh, so. I would hesitate to issue shares even when the shares appear to be pretty rich. I would still even be reluctant then. I would try to do it any other way before I issued shares. Yeah, I ran the numbers on that actually just like a few days ago and the shares that he <laughs> issued were worth $12 billion. So yeah, going back, you, you previously mentioned debt to EBITDA that you kind of liked around, or sorry, um, yeah, two and a half times or so. Is that kind of a general number that you like to stay below for some of these act? Yeah, general number. I mean, most of the companies I have are leveraged well below that. They're like one point something. But then again, you know, I, they sort of flex like an accordion if they happen to do a bigger deal. And I'm okay with that. I want them to do it, do those deals when they can. I mean, I, it was great that Heiko bought Wencore, I think, and bought the number two player in PMA. And so that should be a good transaction. I, I thought it was great when Brown Brown bought GRP, gives them a substantial foothold in the UK and grow that business. So I'm okay with that. And uh, I know the management teams will, will bring that leverage back down in a couple of years. It will be back down below those, well below that two, 2.0 target or whatever. And do some of those businesses that are using debt as leverage, do they ever find trouble getting access to debt? You know, right now, obviously, interest rates are high and debtors aren't exactly running out to find people to give money to. Is that a problem or is it just the, the fact that they have such good operating results in the past that it's easy for them and good relationships, it's easy for them to get that debt? Yeah, I would say more of the latter. For the ones I'm involved in, it's, been, it's easy. It's easy for them. They're not particularly leveraged. They generate a lot of cash and they have a track record. So yeah, I would say it's been easy. You know, but you know, I, <laughs> I always say I remember you know, 2008 crisis when, where there are lots of companies that had you thought were decent balance sheets and then suddenly when credit dried up, even decent balance sheets became problematic. So scars from that made me very picky about balance sheets. And, and that's partly why I am the way I am. And I try to avoid that leverage. So the ones I'm involved in, it's really not, not a problem. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So you mentioned just previously that you don't really like businesses that are issuing equity for acquisitions. Are there any times that you would make a exception for businesses that do that? Or is it kind of just if they have a history of doing that, you're basically just completely red flagging it and you're out? If they have a history of doing it, yeah, I'm probably not. I'm not going to be very interested in that. Um, But there are cases where it can make sense. You know, Technion recently did a small raise, for example, just to kind of bridge because they had such a robust pipeline. You know, they were a little concerned that they might have some of these things all come back and they wouldn't be able to, you know, necessarily make good on all of them. So it was just some money to get just a little bridge to get them across. And I don't really expect them to issue equity again. So I think there can be certain circumstances like that where it may make sense. You know, Heiko issued a sliver of de- of tiny sliver of shares when they did the Wencore deal. You know, I don't know if it made made sense necessarily or not, but you know, for an asset like that, if, if the other side is demanding shares, then it might make might make sense to get a really a premium asset. But you know, this is again more my personal preference because I know there's some serial acquirers that have been reasonably successful and and share issuance is a regular part of what they do, but you know, I don't like that. Also, because if you become dependent on that, you may find that you have to issue shares at a time where it's not so convenient. You know, markets are not always so buoyant and friendly. So 
if you make that a regular part of your plan and then we go through a period of time where share prices are, are low, then it's going to mess up your little algorithm. So European serial acquirers seem to be doing a lot of things right. Since you have Topicus, Technion, and Lifco in your portfolio, I think that you might have some insights into their special sauce. What is it about European and specifically Nordic countries that seem to be producing many high quality serial acquirers? It's a good question. Like with uh, Sweden, there's a whole bunch of them over there, as you know. So, you know, why is that? I remember when I, you know, went there, actually both times when I've been, I've talked to people, I, I usually like to ask this question. I don't know if I ask anymore, but I did for a while because I was trying to figure out, well, what's the deal? Why are there so many of these things over here? And I got several different answers. I don't know that any one of them is right, but there may be some truth in all of them. So, I mean, I can just share some of them with you and see. You know, one of them is that there's just, uh, there's this more of a sense of trust within Sweden, just among the Swedish people. And so it makes that decentralized model more workable. And so it's more of a natural thing to happen there. The other is, you know, you did have Bergman and Reving started the first kind of Swedish serial choir, was very successful and had spinoffs, ad tech, Lagercrons, and so forth. And then naturally there were companies that sprout up in Stockholm to copy that. So it's kind of like maybe what you call uh, like a Silicon Valley effect, I think of it as, you know, you just happen to have tech companies all start there and then they, there's other ones that just start around it. And before you know it, it becomes a hub. And so that Stockholm's become kind of the hub for that. Might also be part of it is that I've heard that part of it may be also that Swedish law is, it's really easy to acquire companies there. You know, you could have a, your documents might be 10 or 12 pages just to, to acquire a company in Sweden. You go to the UK, there's lots of lawyers involved and it's hundreds of pages or, or the US. So there's, there's something, there might be something that. So a combination of all these factors led to this proliferation of serial acquirers in Sweden. So yeah, that, that may be one reason why. So one thing that stood out to me when I've been looking at documentation of many great European businesses is the transparency in insider ownership compared to many North American documentation. Why do you think their levels of transparency in that department are so much greater than in North America and other geographies? I don't know. Some of it is, you know, there's more family-owned businesses over there. And so they naturally disclose those things. But otherwise, I really don't know why that is. So in a presentation by Johan Steen of Technion, he had a great section where he discussed the importance of adjusting as a business scales. For instance, managing 50 subsidiaries down the road will be a lot different than managing the 26 that they have right now. What are some of the key personnel adjustments that you've noticed must be made as a serial acquirer grows successfully? Yes, this is a question I talked to many of them about. And uh, Technion's answer is refreshingly honest. They'll just, they say they don't know and they'll see you know, when, they, when they get there. For, for now, it's Daniel and Yuan and they can handle it for, I'd say, probably at least five more years before... Uh, maybe more before it becomes an issue for them because they're pretty small. But like, uh, you know, I've talked to like Pear Lifco about this and the big change is you have to find more people that can be involved in, cap in the capital allocation role. And that's difficult. Like to find good operators, people know businesses and can run businesses, that's easier. But then to find those people who then also are good capital allocators, that's harder to find or you have to kind of grow your own. So that I'd say is the big change. You have to bring along other capital allocators within your organization so that it can't just be, you know, one guy doing the whole thing or two guys, running, two people running the whole thing. You have, you have others involved. Uh, I think that's the big, the biggest one, biggest change. And so for a business such as Constellation Software, which has tons of people making these decisions, how have they created, I guess, a model or education system that 
is doing such a good job of this and, and you know, how can other companies use it? Well, I think for them, you know, they're, because they're, they're, they're buying the same kind of businesses across all those different silos. So, you know, VMS, vertical market software businesses, they, 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 they know there's certain, you know, they know what SGNA should be. They know what sales and marketing should be. They know all the different costs and what they should be. And they can apply that template across all their acquisitions. Maybe not all now because now they're doing other things as we talked about. Uh, but the old bread and butter anyway. Whereas somebody like, uh, you know, Lifco or, or Swedish Industrial Acquirer can't use a model like that because they're acquiring businesses in different industries. So it's kind of like there's pros and cons to it. And on the one hand, you could argue and say, well, somebody like a Lifco has a much greater TAM than than Constellation. Much, there's not any restraint there. So they're not confined just to vertical market software. But then the downside is they don't have, they can't just have one template and train people to look for these things. They have to have uh, someone who's a little more balanced uh, or, you know, knows, knows businesses and, and can, can value and acquire a lot of different kinds of businesses. So that's kind of the, the tug between having a serial acquire this in one industry and they can have one model that they just apply over and over versus someone who can acquire across different industries. And both can work. And both can work. And so let's invert. What are some personnel red flags to be aware of when coming when it comes to serial acquires in regards, especially to scaling up? Well, I mean, you know, if there's a lot of turnover, that's always a red flag. You want to know why that is. I mean, the other thing is you can sort of watch the returns on the businesses. If you have returns that are declining, that can be an indication something's not right. Even though management saying that that things are okay, if you're seeing it in numbers, you know things seem to be deteriorating. Uh, that can be an indication there's some kind of problem with their they're they're having some problem scaling that that needs to be figured out. So those are a couple that I think of offhand. Um, but you know, on the outside, it's not necessarily always so easy. This is why you really got to have confidence in management team and their process and have great confidence they can do it. So let's turn our focus to the competitive advantages that serial acquirers possess. M&A isn't a new business model, but as a businesses like Bergman and Beving, Lifco and Constellation have shown, it is possible to shine brighter than competition in public and private markets. How have some of these businesses been able to continue doing what they do for decades while the majority seem to fail? I mean, some of it is that there are they're permanent owners of these businesses. I think that's an advantage particularly over private equity buyers and other acquirers of companies that aren't necessarily going to be permanent owners of that business, but are maybe looking to eventually flip it for a profit. So that's one advantage. Some of it is the model itself. So it's, I remember struggling with this in the beginning too, like what's the competitive advantage of, of Swedish serial acquirer Holdco? And it isn't necessarily obvious at the Holdco level. So or think about somebody like Brown and Brown as an insurance broker. There's other insurance brokers. They all do the same kind of similar things. And so, but once Brown and Brown gets the customer, uh, then, you know, it's like a 95% renewal rate. And it's this, it creates this cash annuity, almost like a, like a software company. So it, yeah, they fight like heck to get the business, but once they get it, they keep it. And that's kind of true in the industry generally. So that was, that's what makes it attractive. And I think with this, other serial acquirers, the Swedish serial acquirers, the industrial Swedish serial acquirers, it's similar. They're only once they have the business, then they have it. And a lot of these businesses are small niches. They do little, they do things that aren't necessarily so easy to compete with at that level. So it's not that the, competi- the competitive advantage is necessarily the holding company level, but it's in the companies that they own. It can be at the holding level too. I mean, there are cultural things that are hard to copy. 
and there are approaches that are hard to copy. And, but I think a lot of it comes down to the businesses that they're investing in. Venture capital and private equity are obviously competitors in the M&A space. What structural disadvantages does venture capital and private equity have versus public competitors like these Swedish serial acquirers? Well, I think the big disadvantage, which we just talked about a little bit, was that they, they're not buying for keeps. And so that can matter. I mean, when you're looking to buy, you know, if an entrepreneur is looking to sell his business, yes, there's a certain group of entrepreneurs who are just going to take the highest bid and they don't care. And in those cases, the VCs and private equity and all those, they'll probably win those deals. But for some of them where they're really concerned about the legacy they leave and they're concerned about the employees and they want their business to continue, that's where something like a Technion or a Liftco would be a more valuable home, would be a better home for that business. So it really depends on the, on the kinds of businesses. And certain businesses are not necessarily going to be that interesting to VCs anyway. You know, they're going to go after companies that have really high organic growth, big markets, whereas Technion and Liftco can buy just some small, modest business that may not be you know, it's maybe growing 5% a year or whatever. Um, but that would be perfectly good, perfectly good fit otherwise uh, for those acquirers. So kind of depends a little bit. But the other thing is that serial acquirers, you know, we may see this now because with interest rates a lot higher than they were a year ago, I'm very interested to see how the private equity buyers, you know, what happens to that pool of money? Is it is there less competition now for purchasing companies because they depend heavily on cheap debt. And some of the serial acquirers themselves will use a lot of leverage. They're going to be challenged too. Their model depend, if their model depended more on having access to low cost debt, then uh, you know, that model is going to be challenged now too. be interesting to see that. And then I'll also be curious to see if higher rates have an impact on the prices of the businesses themselves, You know whether they come down a little or not. We'll see. And then looking at the other side, where would VC and private equity have advantages over some of these serial acquirers? Well, they have definitely have an advantage over any situation where the money talks above everything else because they're going to write the big, they're going to be able to write the biggest check and this, the serial acquirers are going to be disciplined about what they pay and they're not going to get involved in those. So any kind of, you know, high growth, sexy company involved in, in anything like, you know, anything like that, those companies have the advantage. So a popular question I come across on Twitter is what makes one serial acquirer better than another? And you kind of just touched a little bit on this, but we can get into it a little more detail. So since many of the businesses seem to be running similar playbooks, it can be hard to differentiate which one deserves your capital over another. What do you think differentiates some of your businesses, such as say a Lifco or over an AdTech or Topicus over Vitech? Well, one is the, it's the people involved and there are some differences in strategy, whether you are okay with it or not. So Vitech is an interesting one that they have issued shares in the past and you're either okay with that or you aren't. And their targets are a little different. I think Vitech has higher organic growth rates generally than Constellation. So they're going after slightly different companies there. So I don't know. I mean, it's, you have to, it's, there's a lot of little particulars that kind of add up and makes them different, makes one serial acquirer different from another. And uh, you just have to sort of compare them all from top to bottom and how they're because I know, I know what you're getting at, and it's popular with maybe people who haven't done a lot of work in it, and then they'll say, you know, well, why is this one, you know, why is this one better than that one, basically what you're asking. And, and it seems like it just opens the door to so much, you know, you have to talk about so many different things. It's not like so obvious that you can just jump out and say, well, they do this and these guys do that. It's a lot of little things. And um, yeah, I guess the people, incentives, the kinds of companies or business, how, how kinds of businesses they're acquiring, how disciplined they are about it, how they finance them a lot of decisions and a lot of ways to do it. 
And so you have to find the, the ones that have the good recipes. But sometimes there can be subtle differences. I agree. And the common answers I usually give are cultural and you've, you've instilled that in me a lot just from reading a lot of your stuff, but you know, culture matters a lot. And especially if you're running these decentralized models, because you're essentially, when you buy them, you're entrusting that the culture that you're buying is going to be just as good, or hopefully maybe even better than the culture that you have now. So I think a lot of businesses just, they can't do that. I agree. And also, you know, the culture matters if you're a long-term holder, I mean, if you're going to own this business, you're thinking of owning the business for a decade, then that becomes very important. If you're just looking to buy something for a year, you know, because the PE is lower than it's been over the last five years and you're playing, you know, some re- that's different and you don't care so much about the culture, but if you're going to own it for a very long time, then these things really matter and they can have a great impact on return over a decade. Absolutely. So many of the best serial acquirers maintain levels of returns on capital that most business owners can only dream of. What is it about the acquisition criteria of many of the best serial acquirers that allows them to maintain such high levels of capital efficiency? Well, I mean, some of it is that they're paying a good price so that helps their returns right off the bat. And two, they're usually buying things that where they feel like they can at least grow the business or increase margins over time. So that's going to help their returns as well. And, uh, you know, staying with businesses that are occupy certain niches where there's perhaps less competition and they can envision what the company might look like five, 10 years down the road. Those are all important considerations. And um, yeah, I think those are, the, those are some key ones. So as a long-term investor, your intent is to hold on to your businesses for a long time. So on a quarterly and yearly basis, how are you monitoring serial acquires to ensure that they continue performing at high levels? Well, you always track uh, the acquisitions, how that's going. Although you don't worry too much about quarters can be light and then sometimes company might go two quarters with hardly making any acquisitions and then boom, boom, they make, you know, two right away. So you want to see that they're consistently deploying capital. That's a big one. And otherwise that they're doing what they, what they say and the underlying health of their businesses is still good. So you still follow it just like you would any other company. I think the only added wrinkle is, yeah, in this case, you want them to spend that, spend capital acquiring new businesses. I don't know if there's any other specific KPIs I follow that are, I mean, different businesses have different KPIs. So Constellation, of course, you're always looking at organic growth and seeing how that shapes out. That's a, kind of an important number. And that's the same with like Brown and Brown. Almost all of them, you're kind of looking at organic growth as well and how, how they are deploying their capital. Those are kind of the two big ones. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you, your fund, and your books? Well, if you Google uh, Woodlock House Family Capital, uh, my website will come up. And I'm also on Twitter, or now X, as they call it. So you can find me there as well. And your handle on Twitter? Uh, it's Chris W-M-A-Y-E-R. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.